When we last left our heroes, they were approaching the decompression depth at six meters, each of them realizing they have less than a minute to make the decision to stay on their own tanks or share the remaining air. In the first case, some of the divers might surface unscathed, but anyone who runs out early must surface, all but assuring they will suffer the effects of the bends. In the second case, they'd all partially decompress, but without the full time, the risk that all of them would suffer the bends is very high. They must make this decision without being able to talk to each other, and hope their co-divers don't panic and make matters much, much worse. Let's rejoin them to see how this plays out. Welcome back to the Exploration Medicine Podcast. My name is Dana Levin. What you're about to hear is a record of my experience as part of the Institute for Nautical Archaeology's expedition to excavate the Western Antalya wreck. This merchant ship sank over 4,000 years ago during the mid to late Bronze Age while carrying cargo, likely from the island of Cyprus to unknown ports in the Northwest. Over the next two months, we'll follow these experiences as they were recorded in real time edited only for sound quality to protect the identities of participants and the location of the wreck itself. At six meters, we are approaching the bright yellow square trapeze set up the day before. My gauge now shows near empty, but I do not yet feel the resistance of a tank out of air. The trapeze is a large yellow square of plastic piping joined with black L-joints. The large square has four chains holding it to a smaller yellow square above, these serve as handholds for divers to stabilize themselves in the water column and breathe air we don't have in our tanks while we decompress. Attached to this smaller square are two lines. The first is a white rope with red and blue trim. This holds the trapeze to the deck of Virazone 2, but next to this is a black rubberized plastic tube, one end of which extends above the water disappearing over the deck of Virazone 2. The other dips between the trapeze handholds, terminating in something immensely more valuable, six regulators. One way to shorten decompression time is to breathe gas that does not include nitrogen. That way, more nitrogen can exit your system. INA's solution to this is to use a 100% oxygen mixture that at the six meter decompression stop, which is what this trapeze is set up to deliver. However, before we can reach this life-giving oxygen, there is one more hurdle. The current near the surface is surprisingly strong. It was strong before we descended and hasn't changed one bit. We are all downstream of the trapeze and must swim hard to reach it. By chance, I'm closest to the trapeze with my dive buddy close behind, followed by the other team, but the bar is still three meters from my fingertips and I'm drifting away and rising to the surface. There's no time for thought here. I release the air from my BCD to rapidly neutralize my buoyancy and arrest the descent. At the same time, I kick my fins to flatten out in a horizontal line, thus minimizing my surface area to the rushing current and lining up with the swinging trapeze. It hangs tantalizingly close in the bright blue water column, surrounded by the sparkling bubbles of another dive group far below us. I take a breath, and I kick hard for the bar, each kick moving me a frustratingly small distance, but every little bit helps, right? Another breath. How many of those remain? The thought rises as an unbidden question in my brain, but I don't have time for such thoughts, so I suppress it in favor of a more productive one. How can I ensure the other divers behind me are able to reach the regulator safely? I have an idea, but I won't know if it'll work until I reach the bar myself, and regardless, I'm running out of time as I take my third breath. My regulator still hasn't failed me, and my lungs again fill with air. 
I'm now less than a meter away from the trapeze. I can see the shadow of Virozon 2 above me with its stopped propeller just above my head as my legs begin to burn from the exertion of propelling my own weight plus the weight of the scuba gear through the water. Two more breaths. I am now just shy of the yellow bar. But did that last one take more effort? Am I imagining it? Am I just inhaling faster than the regulator is set to deliver, or is my tank empty and my only remaining air is whatever's left in the regulator system itself? Regardless, I, I know I don't have many full breaths left, so whatever the answer is, it doesn't matter. I'm focused on one thing, get to the bar, and I can almost reach it now, just a few more fin kicks. But I put my head down to see if I can catch sight of my dive buddy and lose sight of the trapeze for a moment. Just as I do so, I feel the bar brush against the inside of my hand. I snap my fingers shut and fix my grip in place. I'm now in reach of the regulators as I take another breath from my tank. I can simply reach out and replace my regulator with an effectively unlimited air supply. But there is a more important task. I know my dive buddy was near the end of their tank as well, as were the other team members, and they had further to travel. I turn back to see where my buddy is, and notice that they're a meter away and kicking hard. With one hand firmly grasped on the trapeze, I use the other to reach back, gripping my dive buddy's wrist as they close their hand around mine. The other team is not far behind us, and I pull my buddy towards the trapeze before stretching out my foot for the others. One swims up on their own, but the other uses my ankle as a handhold, then grabbing hold of my own buddy's hand, and finally the bar. With the four of us safely clamped onto the trapeze, we replace our regulators with those on the trapeze and continue breathing as if nothing has happened. No panic in anyone's eyes. My buddy dramatically wipes their hand across their brow in a universal comic gesture of relief. It's a futile gesture underwater, as you're not sweating, but the message it sends is clear. The other team members visibly smile behind their regulators. I hook my knees into the trapeze and let go, relaxing into the flow of the current around me. Fifteen minutes later, we break the surface and one by one climb the ladder up onto the ship's deck. Time to clean up, refill the tanks, and eat some lunch. Dramatization aside, the routine of wake up, breakfast, dive briefing, dive one, rest, dive two, showers, dinner, downtime has become somewhat second nature to all of us. There's still the playful adventurous vibe of being on an expedition, but it's reached the low level hum of a team that's begun to mesh together. I now have a much better sense of how the Turkish group is involved also. As best I can tell, there are a few major nautical archaeology groups worldwide. The Institute for Nautical Archaeology is the one based out of the U.S., but there are European and Asian groups as well. INA was founded in 1976 by a man named George Bass, who sounds a bit like Clive Kusler's Dirk Pitt. He's from Texas, decided he loved diving and archaeology, and proceeded to invent methods for excavating ancient shipwrecks. Today, INA has a multi-million dollar endowment, four research vessels, a small submersible, two museums, and a research center in Bodrum, Turkey, as well as Texas A&M in College Station. For the last 40 years, they've been excavating wrecks in the Mediterranean Sea. In fact, the two that made INA famous, I say they're famous here in case you've never heard of them, are the two oldest wrecks in the world. One is at Gelodonia, named for a lighthouse, and the other is at Uluburun, which is named for the small island it lies beneath. They are both within sight of our own wreck, which may predate both of them by as much as a thousand years, and it implies that this small coastal area was particularly dangerous to navigate for the ancient sailors. Over the years, INA has developed a reputation for rigorous, thorough, and well-planned excavations, drawing solid conclusions and spending their money efficiently and effectively. 
However, it's not a Turkish organization. It's based in the United States. And up until recently, this hasn't been a problem. But recently, Turkey's begun searching for ways to support its own archaeological sector. Enter our Turkish team. The leader of the Turkish expedition is a Turkish archaeologist who built his career on investigating Middle Bronze Age sites on and off Turkey's southern coast. Through his studies, he's become the main Turkish authority in the region and was granted permits over southern Turkey's nautical archaeological sites. Since he controls the permits, INA needs his consent in order to conduct the dig. Fortunately, he needs INA's expertise, resources, and money, and so welcomed their participation. So INA's new research vessel and experienced team joined an experienced Turkish archaeologist to conduct the rest of this expedition. That's the background. On site, INA has a rigorous and careful dive safety program that the Turkish team has now adopted. The core of this program are a set of specially designed purpose-built tables produced 30 years ago by Dr. Van at Duke University. These tables assume a flat, constant depth, go down to about 55 meters, and the dive profile time is no more than 20 minutes for most dives. This is then followed by slow ascent to about 6 meters with decompression stops between 10 and 25 minutes on 100% oxygen, depending on the exact profile. Between dives, there is at least a 5-hour surface interval and no more than 2 dives in a day. This is all to ensure that we offload as much nitrogen as possible before returning to the surface to avoid decompression sickness. And in 30 years of diving with these tables and over 20,000 log dives, INA has only had two incidents of DCS following these protocols, which is far less than the national average. To ensure we stay on profile though, divers are timed by a surface tender and an alert is sent via an underwater speaker when two minutes of bottom time remain and again when it's time to ascend. If for some reason this is not enough, they insisted on building a hyperbaric chamber onto the ship itself to allow them to treat decompression sickness within minutes of symptoms without waiting to evacuate. This is the profile I was told about when I came here and the one Virazon 2 has adhered to strictly as can be expected. I'll admit I dramatized that prior description of diving a little bit just to make it more interesting. In reality, most dives are pretty straightforward and not that exciting. But I'll share with you one more anecdote here, in that one of the hardest things to do in operational medicine is to disqualify someone in the field from the job they are there to do. So, it's only fair that I be willing to DQ myself should I not meet dive, safe dive criteria. And at this point, I have developed a mild head cold, which appears to have put some fluid in my middle ear on the right side. This makes it difficult or impossible to clear my ears underwater, so a prudent dive medical officer would disqualify me, and since that's me in this case, I have to take myself off of the dive roster. This is in order to preserve my hearing, but also because an inability to clear my ears underwater means that both I and my dive buddy must abort the dive. So to preserve mission effectiveness, it's better to reshuffle the team, plan for that disruption, rather than have to deal with it in the moment and lose that particular dive. No one wants to be grounded or, well, in this case, surfaced, myself included, and every day I've been complaining to our medical officer to let me dive again. Unfortunately, once I made a decision, I stick with it, so my pleas to myself have, pardon the expression, fallen on deaf ears. In any case, it's given me more time to focus on some of the other tasks of the expedition, which has meant supporting the divers, filling the tanks, writing up my research papers, and doing the work I've taken with me from jobs back home. Downtime and boredom really are big issues on confined spaces like this. 
But there are numerous ways to combat these demons, which range from bringing projects, to reading, to focusing on shipboard tasks, to swimming and observing the wildlife. I've been taking advantage of all of these, but I do have to be careful since our second CMO is not yet here and that means I can't afford a significant injury to myself, otherwise I'd leave the crew without a doctor, again jeopardizing the success of the mission. One other thing I've been focusing on out here is the idea of using non-pharmacologically based therapies for treating common problems like sprained ankles, headaches, and muscle pains. Being on a ship means you are on a wet, rocking platform and have to walk around performing work all day. It's a high-risk environment for slips and falls, and in fact we've had several so far on this expedition. Most often, these are related to stepping up on a surface like stairs or moving from a dinghy to a ship's deck while wearing footwear that has poor traction, like flip-flops. Part of my job here is to anticipate health threats and attempt to mitigate them, so advising people to wear better shoes or go barefoot is a big part of that. But when falls and injuries do happen, expedition docks have a challenge. Medication is a limited resource, takes up limited space, and can cause allergic reactions or side effects. They are also expensive and expire after a time, so excess medications are often discarded and it's difficult to get exactly the right amount for a given trip, thus wasting money, space, and other resources. All of these are true in non-expedition environments as well, but in a remote location, everything is compounded and a little higher consequence. So with this in mind, I've learned a few techniques for pain management, such as trigger point massage and a few pressure point regimens derived from acupuncture. I've been employing these alongside the normal biochemistry-based therapies of rice, NSAIDs, and other pain medications, or to more or less see how feasible these are in a field setting in anticipation of running a more formal study of their effectiveness later. So I've used my downtime to try these things out. And this is the second expedition where I've done this, the first being the expedition to break the world record for highest altitude soccer game with the Equal Playing Field group in 2017. So far, I'm anecdotally impressed with their effectiveness, and while it is absolutely too early to declare them a useful field adjunct, I am cautiously optimistic and looking forward to gathering more formal data. July 16th. Every so often we have a resupply day in Adrasan. This is how we can make sure we have enough consumables to last us the entire expedition. While the ship is in a remote location, it's still near enough to the tiny beachside resort town that returning every so often for supplies is reasonable. It costs us a day at the site, but it's a good idea to have scheduled rest days anyway, particularly when diving on a regular schedule to depths that require decompression. I've had the chance to explore the town now, and it's mostly small hotels, campgrounds, and restaurants. It's right on the Mediterranean, and while the town is well-kept and seems fairly well-off, the docks at the marina look like somebody threw them together as a temporary solution 30 years ago, and no one's done anything since. The dock is basically a rusting steel caterpillar-like structure with its legs in the sand of the beach leading out to the water, and its back coated with rotting, unsecured, uneven wooden boards. There are no facilities there, but every day they drive a sewage truck, a water truck, and a fuel truck out to service the boats tied to this thing. I doubt the dock would withstand even a moderate amount of storm surge, but the people don't seem to care, and so far it's clearly survived for a really long time, so I could be wrong. One of the places we end up frequently while we're doing these resupplies is the Shambhala Hotel. It's a small, clean facility, and I haven't quite figured out the town's population, but this particular location seems to host a fair amount of long-term guests. 
The social environment is a mix between Russian and Turkish expats, retirees, young families visiting them, workers, and vacationers. This means that newcomers are indoctrinated into the community surrounding this hotel. This INA photogrammetry specialist described coming back one night to a Russian birthday party in progress. Now, he speaks no Russian and had never met these people, but was nevertheless quickly handed a drink and forced to sing with them before the Russian grandmother sat him down and asked him all about his girlfriend and why he wasn't yet married with hundreds of children. To be clear, this crew member speaks Spanish and English. The grandmother spoke Russian and Turkish. I have no idea how this conversation took place, but somehow... I am 100% confident that they understood each other in that moment. For my part, there were no Russian birthdays, but I was crowned king of Shambhala after my second visit there. I have no idea why, but the hotel staff started referring to me as the king, so I'm just going to assume that's a good thing. With that said, I'll leave it here for this episode, and thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to the Exploration Medicine Podcast please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a review. It helps us reach a wider audience. We'd also love it if you would subscribe to our email list so we can update you directly when we post a new episode. Special thanks to our production team, Sultana Pefley, Jeremy Seeker, and Emily Stratton. Music is written and recorded by David Keel. More information on each episode, including a comments board, is available on the website at explorationmedicine.com. And as always, feel free to reach out with questions, comments, corrections, thoughts, or anything else by emailing podcast at explorationmedicine.com. Thanks for listening, and see you soon.